two fans were removed from the Wells Fargo Center on Tuesday night during the Sixers vs. Long Lions game after coming to the arena with free Hong Kong signs. The latest escalation in the aftermath of Houston General Manager Daryl Morey's since-deleted tweet supporting the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Many of you have asked for us to comment on the matter. We are currently investigating a number of different angles to the story, and if we arrive at something that is fleshed out and moves the story forward, we will report on it. Unless and until that happens, we will avoid speculating on the motives of the 76ers, the Wells Fargo Center staff, or anybody involved. Still, before moving on to the podcast, a quick word about the overall state of the NBA and its place in the Hong Kong situation. It is true that most arenas have policies which allow for the removal of political protest signs. In fact, the language tends to be extremely vague, with an entry on the prohibited items list of the Wells Fargo Center that states simply that any other items deemed inappropriate are not allowed. It is also true that the First Amendment doesn't apply to private companies and their venues. But Mr. Watt's demonstration on Tuesday night isn't going to be a one-time occurrence, as Wednesday night's game between the Wizards and the Long Lions showed. Wittingly or not, Daryl Morey started a conversation about the Hong Kong protests, and about the Chinese government in general. In truth, while Morey's tweet may be the reason we're having this specific conversation about this topic at this time in history, he is not the reason this conversation exists. This was inevitable the moment the NBA started pursuing business opportunities with a repressive regime with a history of silencing dissent, and a willingness to use its economic might to do so. Does that mean the NBA shouldn't have pursued the Chinese market? No, not at all. But having to navigate this controversy is part of the cost of doing business for an increasingly global NBA. While Maury's tweet may have caught the league off guard and played a role in its initial reaction that was criticized by both ends of the political spectrum, the league cannot claim to be taken by surprise anymore. This is an issue that is here to stay. There will be more demonstrations in NBA arenas in the days and weeks ahead. And while arenas will have policies in place to justify the removal of those speaking out, the NBA will need to decide on what message it wants to send and on how it wants to be remembered. While the NBA may not have wanted to be drawn in the middle of these protests, their place in this conversation is now unavoidable. There are financial consequences at stake if the NBA does not capitulate to China's objections, and those consequences could be drastic. But there are consequences to being on the wrong side of history as well. These are values and the freedom of expression that we as Americans hold near and dear to our hearts. And these are human rights concerns which should be non-negotiable. And with that, on to the podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's edition of the Sixers Beat, part of the CLNS Media Network. How are you doing, Rich? The the preseason is underway, and did something important happen last night? I'm trying to think. Yeah, they beat the uh, the the Long Lions. Did that they was, cover? That was, I have no idea. I have no idea what that the spread was was on that one. The Sixers could have won that one by 80 if they really wanted to, but uh, that was not at the top of the priority list. You know, Brett Brown, I, I, I guess the most important takeaway from that – no, I'm just kidding. It's Ben Simmons making a three-pointer. It's something that the Sixers tried pretty hard to downplay after the fact, and you get why it's a little patronizing if you come out and you celebrate an NBA player making a three-pointer in a game. I can get how that – An NBA all-star making a three in a game. But it is the first one – Ben Simmons has made in a live game in almost four years. 
I think it was November 2015, was when he made the one at LSU during his collegiate career. And then he obviously missed his first NBA season in the NBA because he was injured and didn't make a three-pointer in the next two, regular season, preseason, or postseason. So Brett Brown can downplay it all he wants, but it was still something the fans needed to see and, and something I think Ben Simmons probably needed to get off of his back. Doesn't mean too much. No. Like he was shooting over a six foot guard on a team in the CBA who, I mean, was that shot much more difficult than something he takes in practice? Something he takes even in warmups? No, it wasn't. But he took the shot with thousands. I think I'm safe in saying that thousands of people in attendance and on a TV audience. And that's not something he, he does in previous years. I don't think it wasn't a heave. It wasn't a trick shot. It wasn't anything other than a normal dribble pull up jumper that went in. And it was a, a pretty momentous occasion. Did he want to shoot that shot, Derek? No, not at all. Um, Mike Scott and, uh, Joel Embiid played a huge part. And the fact that, that shot was even taken, the the fans in attendance who egged him on yes. played a huge part in that shot going up. But he took it, and it went in, and life moves on. And hopefully that one shot going up and going in will make it easier for the next 30 or so shots to go up over the next couple of, hopefully, weeks, but at least the next couple of months. I'll add one more teammate in there. Tobias Harris wanted him to shoot it as well. And okay. after the game, I, I did look at that, uh, that video, like the Zapruder film, breaking it down from Kylo Quinn almost going into the locker room and running back onto the court to Mike Scott goading the crowd into goading Ben to shoot it. <laughs> uh, and Tobias was also pointing at him. And after the game, he said, I forget the exact quote, but it was, he's, the best shooter of all time. I don't want to hear anything about it. He said in a, in a joking manner, but also a supportive one as well. Uh, to me, Joel Embiid's reaction to Ben Simmons shooting a three was the most telling. Yeah. When, uh, when he hasn't been picking at his wedgie at the free throw line. <laughs> Very strange new habit he has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, don't, uh, no, no close ups, NBC sports Philly. Uh, he has been saying though, or, or at least hinting at it in a not so subtle way that he wants Ben to shoot. And he looked at it for half a second when Simmons wasn't going to shoot. And he gave like a, what the hell, man? You better shoot this. And, uh, it, it looks like he was tired of watching Simmons dunk on guys who had no business being on the floor with him for the, uh, for the 10th time. So, you know, and this goes back to last year too, where, Joel, I, I do think he's pretty supportive of Ben, but he is like the rest of us where he thinks, all right, man, you, you got to figure this out. You got to make my life easier. And I'm thinking back to after the Lakers game at home last year, when Ben took a three only after LeBron was literally defending him from under the rim when he was at the three-point line, and Joel Embiid was at the podium with J.J., I think it was our friend Sarah Todd who asked them if they were surprised Ben shot the three. JJ said no, and Joel gave a dramatic pause, smiled at JJ, and said, you sure? Uh, so I do think he appreciates Ben's talents, but 
you know, I, I think he, he really, there was a second there where it looked like Ben was not going to shoot that and he was mad. But then when he did take it, uh, it, it turned into a, a complete celebration mode. And, uh, it was, did, did you see it? I think they first started circulating like over the summer, but there is Ben Simmons making a three pointer in 2K to win the championship and the fans and the teammates all celebrating. It was shocking how close that looked when it happened in real life. Of course, this was in a preseason game against the Guangzhou Long Lions, so the stakes weren't quite as high, but the reaction was very similar. I, I kind of feel bad for Ben Simmons in that way because it, it, it is like you said. It's kind of the Markel Fultz somewhat, patri- patronizing. somewhat patronizing effect. It, it is, but people want them to shoot it. I, I don't. Necessarily blame the fans, and of course there's a uh, there's been some stuff out of Orlando that the the Sixers fans were were too negative to Fultz. Where what I, I actually think they might have been too positive to him. Actually, are you for, kidding me? We got destroyed when we tried to talk about anything related to Fultz because fans just didn't want to hear any of it. They were yeah. way too positive, which so, I I get. Like you want to root for your players. Trust me, I get. Uh, but there's fans where you cannot say Philly fans were not supportive of this one. At least not. A good, decent chunk of Philly fans who were wildly supportive of a kid who really hadn't shown them all that much to be supportive about. Yeah. And so it's clear that Ben Simmons did not love all the hullabaloo about that. He, of course, gave his, oh, I didn't even hear the fans after the game. <laughs> yeah. okay, okay, man. They were pretending like, like that was just as loud as the Kawhi Leonard shot last year, basically. Uh, Brett Brown downplayed it just because I think he is just so sick of of talking about it, which I, I feel bad for him because guess what? They, we're going to still talk about it. But uh, well, here, here's the thing: next time he makes one, it's just a normal NBA shot. Now we'll we'll talk about it again. Now, if he doesn't shoot him, yeah, or I, if he goes one for his next fifteen, but the next time he if he makes another one, in his next preseason game, it's just a normal basketball play now, which is good. I, I feel as bad as I can for somebody who just signed a a max contract extension and who has this ridiculous kind of weakness. But I I, I do like, he's such a, we we talk about this all the time, but he's such a a weird player in that he's so good at so many other things. And if he was just average at everything, there would be less focus on this one thing. But look, he needed to shoot it. And uh, let's, let's move it to the positive. I am no Herb McGee. Or I don't, you know, shooting coach X. But can I say that the form and accuracy looks like it's made some progress? Yeah. So it's it's uh it's first of all you'd never take a seven year old kid and be like shoot the ball like this. That would yeah. never happen. I mean, I hope l- not. Let's be clear. What what I'm saying, it's still not good. Here's what I'd say. There have been a lot of players with bad form who have become good shooters. Reggie Miller. No, we're not. We're not. We're not asking him to be Sean Marion. We're not asking him to be Jason Kidd. He doesn't need to be a develop into a good shooter. He just needs that ball to go in the basket every now and then. We need a, a capable shooter at best. So is the form good? No, it's not. But the question is, can he repeat that bad form to a somewhat reasonable frequency? And I think he's, you know, I here, here's what, taking a step back from that one shot into what we've seen all fall so far. Absolutely. I agree with this. What you're about to say. And we've seen, we've seen a decent chunk of shots in practice before games that won in the game 
it looks like it's a more repeatable shot. It looks like he his form is, again, not great. Like, you're still going to see the elbow flare, maybe not as bad as other times, but it's not a great-looking shot. But the spin on the ball looks more consistent. The way it comes off of his fingertips looks more consistent. And as long as, as that's true, and the ball, the, he's not missing left to right wildly like he used to. He's not coming up a foot short every now and then. Like, he's, the, the results and the motion do look a little more repeatable which is really all you're asking combined with a willingness to shoot and a confidence to shoot. And again, like I said, do I ever think he's going to be Ray Allen with this technique and this form? No. But can he become a 33% three-point shooter? Considering how easy of looks he's were, they'd be asking him to take? I'm more confident now than I was a year ago, which is progress. It's progress. Yeah, and you mentioned the competition. Obviously, uh, you know, not exactly NBA players out there. I mean, but well, I, think I, that, I think I I think you and I had a better chance of defending him than uh, Kiefer Sykes did. Yeah, but I, I will say it, that was more apparent when he was kind of blowing by them in the open court, and it looked like he was on three times fast forward compared to them. That's a shot that he's going to be given by NBA defenses. Sure, I think maybe the player would be a little taller guarding him. But, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to the Celtics series in past years, and I don't know, where, where was Marcus Morris picking him up at? It was probably a step inside the three-point line. So he, he can – I mean, that was a bomb. Yeah. And, and that was part of what you were talking about, his warm-ups and, and kind of what he shoots in practice. He shoots them from deep. So I, I think, again, like like you said – it's not good form, especially when you freeze frame it at the top of his shot. It it still looks all kinds of jacked up. But I have to say, it, it does look more repeatable. And the, the interesting thing to me is that he looks comfortable shooting those deep threes. I forget if it was the last podcast or the one before when we expressed some skepticism about him making corner threes. Yep. Well, look, weird form and all, he looks Plenty comfortable taking threes well past the corner. So to me, that is kind of a uh, a development I was not really prepared for. And look, it's only been a couple weeks. It's uh, you know, I remember when Fultz looked kind of functional some days, and then, yeah, he had that week where yep. And then once he got into November, it's it, look making shooting changes are hard, regardless of of what is going on. But uh, I would like to say, as someone who expressed some skepticism, uh, a lot of skepticism. Some skepticism, yeah. We both expressed heavy doses of skepticism. A lot of skepticism. Sorry, misspoke. In the past, that uh, the form was so broken that I wasn't sure how it could become repeatable enough to be an actual threat. He has seemingly chipped away at that imperfect form. So... To that, I would say good for Ben Simmons and good for uh, Chris Johnson for yep. for that work. So, so are we done talking about the uh, the one three pointer? I, I mean, look, it's it's a big deal. I don't want to turn into Brett Brown. And I mean, I would say half matter. my my take is, is as much what we've seen in practice as it is that one shot. And like that, that's this time last week when we did our our podcast last week. You know, we were saying, hey, he hasn't really done any shooting in front of us so far. And that that's kind of changed here in the last week, which is again, it's it's good to see. It is the direction you want it you want him headed in, even if we're not ready to say, okay, well you can slot him in for thirty five percent and 
two attempts a game. Like, no, nobody's saying that. Yeah. But it does look like there might be some progress. All right. To me, Other main... the, the willingness is now more of an, is more of an issue than the shot. And a hundred percent. Cause at the end of that, day, he's still, I, I say that's a, go ahead. You finish. Okay. <laughs> so to that, I say that that is a good first week and a half for Ben Simmons. A hundred percent. At the end of the day, he still needed to really, really be pushed into taking that shot. I agree with you. The willingness and the confidence is still the bigger question. Moving on to the other main takeaway I had from that game. And again, it not NBA competition. You looked at, you know, Joel Embiid could have gone to the free throw line 40 times against Andrew Nicholson if he played a whole game. And he really wanted to. And he could have probably dropped 70 points. That That is not an environment where you can evaluate, especially the Sixers' best players. So I think the, when you get past the one jump shot, which Ben Simmons made, huge deal. When you get past that, I think the next biggest takeaway are the rotations. And, and really what you're looking at is where Brett Brown's head is at. So before the game, he came out and he said, the first half are going to have some semblance of a rotation. And the second half, it's sort of just getting people time. So what we took away from the first half, he played 10 players. You know, it's five starters. James Ennis, Matisse Thibel, Trey Burke, which, who we'll get to in a second, Mike Scott, and Kylo Quinn. I would say there's two surprises there. First of all, Trey Burke over Howell Neto. And then Matisse Thibel, I mean, he came in five minutes in the game. He came in for Joel Embiid alongside James Ennis as the first substitutions of... The game. So, A, what do you take from that? And B, how surprised are you from where you were maybe a couple weeks ago? P- pretty surprised. I, I will say, you know, I think a lot of our listeners probably know this. Uh, because of the way the Sixers stagger their lineups, the first guys that come in are not always the, the technical sixth and seventh men. Right. They might not end up with the most and the second most minutes. I Like, I think... Me and you would probably say Mike Scott is a six man and he doesn't come in until Tobias comes out and then he gets a long run. But, uh, yeah, I, I think Thibel being in there, it, it seems pretty quickly he has not only established himself ahead of Zaire Smith, he has established himself just in the rotation in general. And yes, I, I am a little surprised from where I was a month ago. But he's kicking ass whenever he plays. So, you know, it's really not that surprising. And again, you, you can only play who's on your schedule. It's been an inter-squad scrimmage. Although, when he was kicking butt in that scrimmage, yeah. it was against the starters. He was on the worst team. It was against team. Ben Simmons. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. So, uh, he has been about as good as you could expect. I, I watch him and I really wonder if this is the perfect team for him. He is going to be playing with so many long defenders that he should be able to be placed on the worst offensive player or the worst off-ball offensive player because guys like Josh Richardson and Ben Simmons are more than capable of guarding the good guys and just let him create havoc and roam off the ball like a free safety. I uh, I got a kick today today out of Embiid saying, and nobody is talking about him. Literally yeah, everybody. We talk about. <laughs> I think on Saturday, literally everybody, including myself, led their piece with glowing praise of him. Uh, he has been excellent. And, you know, I, I think we, we kind of 
suggested this could be the case in the offseason. He, he seems like, again, I don't want to say I, I know everything about him. We've, we've been around him for a little bit of summer league and, you know, the, the training camp, but he seems like the type of guy who has the four year pedigree and kind of the maturity to step into the NBA right away. But for the most part, he just creates complete havoc off the ball in a way that is somewhat reminiscent of Covington. I think it's a little bit different in that Cove, his, uh, his best thing were just his hands were so quick. And, and that was kind of what stood out. Matisse has a little bit of that, but there, there is a more, anticipatory quality to what he's doing. And it's, it's not only that he has been so good off the ball. They, uh, and again, against this Chinese team, you know, you know, they just have an athletic advantage against. So it's not against NBA competition, but they were pressing like, you know, like West Virginia or somebody. And, and I wonder if Thibault is going to, to, you know, if he's the driving force of that. I, I just know that Brett Brown, before training camp said that he wanted to take more chances, he wanted to be more aggressive, and that feels like the perfect fit for what Thibel's doing. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, <clears throat> it is, you know, I think of the two that, that we mentioned there, the two surprises in the rotations, Trey Burke, you know, Brett Brown came out and he, he pretty much said, yeah, I, I played Trey tonight, but tomorrow night, later on in the preseason, that could be how we'll take that spot. Like, he, not not take it. But for him to give both of them a chance to play with his more prominent players is the way that he phrased that. We're two games, with, and I think Howell played better in both of those games, too. So. I agree. And I, I, I expect Howell to eventually win that tournament, just again, just based off of their play styles and what Brett expects and all that stuff. But it seems like Matisse, on the other hand, he's he's playing, he's getting those first minutes off the bench because he's earned it, because that's sort of where he is in the rotation right now. And I think if you go back a couple pods ago, we talked about this. I think we expected Matisse to eventually be the one to win that wing tournament. The is this is this still a quiet tournament? Is this is it a slightly more slightly louder tournament? I don't know what to call it. The wing tournament between him, Corkmaz, and Zaire Smith. I think we expected him to win it, but I thought I think we expected there to be like a little bit of back and forth. And it sounds like Matisse might just be out in front right from the jump. And I agree with you. Like, I think his off-ball playmaking fits in really well with this team and what this team needs and with what Brett Brown wants to do. And they do have Josh Richardson and Ben Simmons, who, even though they're 6'6 and 6'10, can jump out there and defend those ball handlers and those quick guys. That gives them a little more flexibility. Maybe they don't quite need a Zaire Smith-type one-on-one defender as much as they may otherwise have. I think. Brett Brown compared him the other day to Avery Bradley, which might not be the comparison you want to make considering how Bradley's career has turned out and how sort of that one-on-one stopper that's not really all that switchable, how that has sort of been phased out of the game, at least when it comes at the expense of team defense and switchable defenders. You know, they're sort of going to the Matisse guys more than they are the Zaire guys. And I think I think Zaire might have a little more multi-positional ability than Bradley does. Like he's got pretty long arms, the athleticism will come into play. Uh, I think he can bulk up and, you know, I think he can be more versatile. But I think Matisse's off-ball skills are what they need and what they want. And and, and he plays with a, you know, he, he plays like a more mature player than Zaire does at this time. 
because he's older and he's he's played more basketball than him. And I trust his shot more. And I think all of that is sort of coming to fruition. He has been, you know, I think Brett Brown said that he had a combination of 16 steals and or deflections in the scrimmage. Then you saw him against the Long Lions and it was same playbook, like blocks from behind, steals, playing center field. Like he was, he was everywhere and he got out in transition. He made a couple threes. It is, you know, he talked about it after the game. You've had this incredible transition force in Ben Simmons, who's been hamstrung a bit because there's really nobody to force turnovers and ignite that break. And those two can definitely play very well off of each other. Yeah, he's shooting, and like you said, shooting, shooting it really well to, uh, to start the preseason. Uh, just looks like he works on that really hard. I, you know, we, we said about, we talked about it in summer league that, his shot looked better than I expected. Uh, I, I would be pretty excited about this kid. Now, maybe, uh, maybe Elton Brand will have the last laugh even after, uh, getting, uh, getting the old shakedown from Danny Ainge. Because... Nah, he still should. He didn't. We don't need to rehash that, but we said at the time, I, lo- I liked Matisse at the time, but that, uh, that was an overpay, which I think could have been avoided. And that was my, my real criticism of that. But that is a, ultimately, it is true. It's not going to matter if they, if they got it right, then it, it looks like they, uh, initial returns are good for sure. Yeah. And sometimes I think we, uh, we slow play, you know, what, what rookies do. And it's true. There, there can be some level of improvement, but first impressions are, are a big deal. And, uh, and sometimes they can be like, I remember when, uh, Igadala came out and he beat out, what was it? Glenn Robinson for that starting spot. Oof, and you could just that's see a right cut. away. <laughs> yeah. You can just see right away, though, like, okay, that that kid's going to work out. Like, he, he's going to be a good player. Uh, and then you can go the other way and sometimes see, you know, at, at this point in Julia Locafor's NBA career, the, the doubts were creeping in pretty quickly. So it can, first impressions can tell. I'm, I'm very much a sample size. Give it time. I need time for my evaluation to truly form. But first impressions can, uh, can be a good indicator sometimes. It, it, you can definitely tell whether someone belongs sometimes. And I think, I think I think Matisse belongs. I do. God, young Igodala. I feel like he would run circles around old big dog. That would be yes. That, that doesn't seem like much of a competition. But yeah, what he if, did. He did start right away, didn't he? He was. He he did. And I think I think Robinson averaged like sixteen or seventeen a game the year before. Like he was not. He was pretty close to washed, but he was not. He was he was still seen as a viable NBA player, even if that style of player was pretty quickly going out of favor and, and and nowadays is certainly far out of favor yeah they were uh they were trying anybody to uh to be a second scorer next to iverson and it didn't really work out but but i guess back to uh to the, to today yeah I, I don't really think zaire has played terribly from what i've seen he didn't he didn't i think he had an air ball the other night but i i don't really even think it's as much of an indictment on him just more than matisse is popping right now and it seems like he clearly ha- has a rotation spot and, you know, it, he's obviously ahead of him in the rotation, but I would be really surprised if he gives that spot up anytime soon. Whew. Big dog was out of the league at 32. Anyway, uh, that, that is neither here nor there. <laughs> I forgot how young he was when he was, he was out. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I expect them to give. Zaire a chance. I expect them to see what he can give you. I do still expect sometimes there will be games where they'll, you know, go back and forth between them. 
Like, I don't think, I, I'm not sure Brett Brown right now wants his rotations, once once his 10 or 11 guys set in stone. But I just, I, I have more confidence in Matisse, both as a skill set that they need and they want in that slot, in his shooting, and then also just, I think he's, he's closer to being ready. So I expect, I expect him to win that one. Yeah. What, uh, what else did he take from that game? I, I don't really have too much. I think, I don't know. What do you got? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because like you can't, you, you just can't take too much from, uh, you know, from, from, from your starters. Like they had such, like Ben Simmons came down to court on the first possession, got a screen, did a little hesitation dribble and had an uncontested layup. And it was like, oh, he can do that every time down the trip, down a court if he wants to. You know, I thought from the scrimmage, I like some of the stuff. I thought it was interesting that Al Horford has played center in both the scrimmage. I mean, the scrimmage he had to because Kyle O'Quinn and Jonah Bolden were on the other team. So especially when a beat was off the floor, there's only so many, like he, he had to play some center, but he also then played some center in the, in, in the preseason game. And I, I'm really intrigued by that. You know, I thought he looked good playing alongside Ben Simmons. They had that one play where there was a little high-low action. Horford was was sort of diving down, touch pass out to the corner. Like I like having someone with his basketball IQ and how quickly he can process stuff and his passing ability alongside Ben. I think that is going to be an interesting pairing. I know Brett has expressed a desire to make sure that they keep him fresh for the playoffs, and I get that. And we talked about that as a possibility in the summer, that he might not play too much center. But I really do think I'm going to like those Ben and Horford at center lineups. So I hope they keep that in there from time to time, especially against tough teams, especially against good teams where you really might want to pick up that W. But I think that's going to be interesting to watch. You know, I think, I yeah, think, I think how has looked good. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they had a play in the scrimmage in Wilmington where you could just see. Horford made a back cut on a play where it, it's not, it was like a horn set where that back cut is not designed, but whoever was guarding him, I think it might have been Jonah Bolden, was overplaying him, makes a back cut to the middle, and Simmons A has the height and the anticipation to make that pass, and it was this beautiful tic-tac-toe that of course Corkmaz missed in the, uh, in the corner for three. But still, you can see kind of the, uh, the partnership and the kind of collective basketball IQ there. Uh, I also, before you, uh, I guess, get to Howell, I'm a little bit intrigued with Kylo Quinn. I think as a as a third center, you could do a lot worse than him. He's made some nice backdoor passes in some of these games. So that's been outside of Matisse. That's been like the, the second hot topic all of training camp is Kylo Quinn's passing. It was not what I was expecting to spend a lot of time talking about. But yeah, he's looked he's looked good in that in that role for sure. Yeah, and you know, we'll see. Uh, I think Brett talked about trying to grow his three-pointer and, and kind of exploring what that looks like. He looks pretty comfortable taking them. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to see a little more KOQ. But, yeah, him being in the rotation, like, like you said, he was in the first half rotation, which is what Brett said might mirror what they do when the games start to uh, to matter, I think is kind of indicative of how he's played. Yeah, I'm, my, my biggest problem with, KOQ is that it comes at the expense of Al Horford at center. And am I ever going to believe that that is the 
best lineup to win a game when he's on the court? No, probably not outside of games where Embiid's sitting, which may or may not happen as much as we expect it to. And we can get to that in a second, but it is always going to feel like, like Kyle O'Quinn being on the court is just a compromise because you, you don't really want to play your best lineups and, or don't really want to wear Al Horford down, but it's good to have that third option. A, because you expect Embiid and Horford to miss some games, but B also, so you don't have to wear Horford down. We'll see. I like, I like, I like Kyle O'Quinn. I guess getting to, Howell and Trey Burke, since that's, I guess, really the one spot in the rotation that seems to be somewhat up in the air. You mentioned before that it seems like Howell has outplayed Trey pretty significantly. And I think that was especially true in the scrimmage when they were going up against each other, which, you know, that sort of matchup had a little bit of extra juice because they're, they're really fighting for that one spot in the rotation. And first of all, Trey Burke's, the, Ability for you to goad him into some less than desirable shots, I think, was pretty evident in that scrimmage. He had a devil of a time finishing over Joel Embiid and Al Horford, and I guess that's a little bit of bad luck on his part because he had to go up against those two. Whereas Howell and the rest of that team was were going up against, you know, Jonah Bolden at the rim, which is a slightly different proposition. But he had a devil of a time finishing over those two, and really just, I mean, Howell made his life very difficult, and you know. Neto's not the type of guy who's going to be a plus defender against every matchup. He's a little like TJ in that regard, where some nights he's just going to be physically overmatched, and he's going to be a negative even if he tries hard and does the right things. But against the right matchup, and I think Burke is sort of the right matchup for him, he can, he can, I mean, he can be pesky, and he was very pesky in that scrimmage, and I thought pretty handily won that matchup. And, uh, you know, it's a first impression. I think that first impression was a little bit reinforced by what they did against the long lions neither of them are really all that relevant when the games start to matter but they are your first and second impression i think right now howell is winning that battle yep and it, it's kind of played out how we thought it might where burke has the ability to score you know in bunches but it's not quite as consistent and there's a reason it was i don't know it was like july 25th when he, when he signed with the Sixers and Howell got signed on the second. So, uh, he's just been a little bit steadier. I, I still think that Trey is going to get a chance and there's five or four more preseason games for, for those two to battle it out. But yeah, I would put Howell pretty safely ahead of him so far. Yeah. He will absolutely get a chance. Uh, I fully expect now that we said that he will come out and drop 20 on Friday night. Well, because that is the way my life works. He'll drop twenty in a game that we might not be able to find a television stream for, That's at least true. at least legally. Uh, That's true. So, uh, if if you look at your box score the next day, like the olden days, and uh, Trey Burke has thirty five points, you can thank us. Can I just say, I think Mike Scott memes. Oh, this this, this might be the least popular take I've ever had. I think Mike Scott memes might be played out. I'm, I'm, he's, he's, he forces it. He forces cashed out. He forces ain't no bitch. Um, find something new, man. Find something new. And look, that, the other night when Ben Simmons hit that three and he, he said cashed out, great. I think that's the last one. I think you gotta retire it. I think you gotta retire ain't no bitch. He's just forced them in there. That's my other main takeaway from the game. And that, that, that speaks to the level of competition because there's just not much more I can fake having taken an actual valuation of when I think I could have posted up half that team. But I think cashed out and ain't no bitch have to be retired. That's my take. 
Uh, uh, no comment. <laughs> Don't want to get that Mike Scott hive on you, do you? No. I mean, look, he's he, here's why I think they need to be retired. I think he's a funny guy. I think yes. he's a, a thoughtful guy. I don't think he needs to have a bit. I think he can. I think the reason those were funny is they came naturally, and I feel like they are well, they are being forced into every post game interview right now. And I don't think he needs to do that because I think he can come up with new material. Yeah, well, he's like he's like a comedian who has workshopped a lot of material, and now he's been on a long tour where you continually say the same jokes. He probably has a Netflix special or something like that. Now it's time to hit the comedy clubs and figure out some new stuff. <laughs> Um, anything else, anything else that we can pretend it matters from that game? I don't think so. I don't think so. We can, we can watch the next few games and then try and figure out some new stuff, but there's only so much you can get when you win by, I don't even remember what the final score was by 70. 144 to 86. That's what? 60. Yep. 58. Ugh. Can't do math. Can't do math. My math is about as good as Brett. When Brett breaks the season into thirds and you realize he's 34 games into the season by the end of the first third of the season. Yes. Gets longer every year and Brett's been here for a while, so it is not a third. When we get into mid-January, it is no longer a third of the season, Brett. All right. I think think that's a decent enough place to cut it off. We don't need to... Pretend that these games matter more than they do. They are great because they are basketball, and we have not watched basketball or talked about actual basketball games in quite a long time, but they are still not nearly as relevant as we want them to be. But we are coming there quickly. We In, in two weeks, we will have those fucking Boston Celtics in town, and we can talk about that game, and we can actually take something from it. Until then, thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.